okay? So, we're going to continue our series this morning uh, that we've called Jesus Reps. Uh, that's not reps like repetitions in the gym. That's reps like representing Jesus. We're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead uh, and open it there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, tucked right in the pew in front of you, you'll find one and you can open up to uh, the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. For the most part, as a church, we make it a habit just to teach directly through books of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. Um, But as we do so, I have a tendency to break all the sections down into series. And the reason is because sometimes we lose the forest in the trees. And so if you read the passage that we're about to read on its own, You can neglect, you can miss the bigger point that our author, Mark, is trying to make, okay? Uh, All of the New Testament is literature, it is literary. God has chosen to reveal himself through writing, and that means that it has literary features. There are aspects of the way the book is written that convey meaning, And one of the things that's unique to Mark as an author, we call a Markin sandwich, okay? It's just a habit he has, a way of structuring his book uh, that is unique to Mark, and here's how it works. Mark will focus on an idea, and then he'll detour to another idea, and then he'll come back to idea A again, okay? And so it's a Markin sandwich because you've got the two on the outside that are the same and something unique in the middle. Now, big deal, why does it matter? It appears that Mark does this to say these three are related and the, uh, the thing that makes sense of the other parts is the center, okay? Um, so, for example, a while ago, a while ago, Jesus uh, encounters his family who have come to take him home. They're afraid that he's lost his mind and that the things that they're hearing about him have to be evidence of insanity, so they come to take him home. And then suddenly Mark veers away from that and talks about his opposition with the religious leaders of Israel, and then he jumps back in and talks about family again. That move, again, appears intentional because he wants to show the totality of opposition from the most intimate to the religious leaders What happens here is a little bit easier to miss. Last week, we looked at Jesus' disciples, uh, who he has sent out to to operate in his name, to carry out his mission, and then he's going to follow behind them. And so they're sent on a short missions trip. He gives them instructions and information, and most importantly, he gives them power. He says, in my name, cast out demons. In my name, anoint the sick and they will be well. In my name, preach the kingdom of God. Okay. And so we focused last week on representing Jesus in power. That we've all all are called as Christians to be witnesses for Christ. To bear testimony of who he is. To operate as his servants and as his disciples. But that's only half of the paradigm. And so what we're going to read this morning uh, is an inserted story about the forerunner of Jesus Christ, 
John the Baptist. About John the Baptist's opposition to Herod, who's a ruler in Israel, that leads to John being beheaded. Okay? But I want you to notice that he tells this story, and it's directly tied to what we read last week. And so um, pick up with me in verse, uh, verse 12. Speaking of the disciples here, it says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed him. King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Heard of the disciples going around and doing these things. Okay? And then notice at the end of the passage we're going to focus on today in verse 29, uh, verse 28. And he brought his head on a platter, that's the head of John the Baptist, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, these are John's disciples, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Do you see how we could just delete this whole story about John the Baptist and we wouldn't know it was missing? They went out, they did these things, and then they returned and told Jesus how it went. But Mark intentionally juxtaposes this story of John in the middle. He makes a Mark and sandwich, and this middle prepares us to understand something more significant about the full. Okay. Let's be honest this morning. If Jesus truly is the Messiah, if he truly is the Son of God, if he truly commissions us and empowers us in his name to heal the sick, to deliver people from the demonic realm, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, that is all great stuff. It's fun stuff. Okay? It's amazing. In fact, Luke tells us that the disciples come back and they are so exhilarated by this. They say, Jesus even the demons were subject to us in your name. They're full of adrenaline because of this. But Mark wants to give us the other side of the coin. He wants to fill out the fuller reality. And the truth is, we don't just represent Jesus in power. We also were called to represent him in opposition. Okay? And so, with that being said, let's read the passage together and pray, going back to verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, and he wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And he came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. 
But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray. Father, I ask uh, that you would show us the other half of representing you, Lord. Yes, you have empowered us for ministry, but as you, Lord, said yourself, if they hated me, they will hate you also. You, Lord, said yourself that we should take up our cross and follow you, and that the way of discipleship in some sense is the way of death. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand the necessity of this as well as its goodness. And for that, we need your help. And so I pray that you would teach us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, why does Mark put this story here? Obviously here, John the Baptist's death predates what's happening here. It's been a long enough time that when Herod hears about the ministry of the disciples, he explains it basically saying, John is back from the grave. But we're told about this story here because it pulls back the curtain to where things are headed. Because although Jesus drew great crowds, and although Jesus uh, uh, brought life and liberty to many, and although he taught in a way that the crowds had never heard it because he taught as one who had authority, eventually all of Israel will put Jesus to death, even the death on a cross. In fact, these disciples who go out in Jesus' name on this trial-run period of representing Jesus, which they will do for the rest of their lives, each and every one of them, 11 of the 12, will die for representing Jesus. That's where things are headed. And the reason is because, as it is with John, when we bring a message of good news we also bring a requirement. We draw a line in the sand. Think of all the times in Jesus' ministry where someone came to him and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he says to the rich young man, you need to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And it says that the man went away sorrowful. Jesus told a man who came to him and said, I want to follow you. And he said, you need to know that the Son of Man, that's me, Jesus says, the Son of Man... Uh, does not have any place to lay his head. I don't have a home. You need to count the cost. In the Gospel of Luke, he says, count the cost before you become my disciple because who begins building a tower without making sure he has enough in the savings to complete it? Who decides to stand in war instead of, uh, instead of calling for a peace treaty unless he has enough soldiers to defeat the other side? Jesus was always frank about the cost of following him. And so Mark pulls back the curtain, he looks into the future, and he says, let's not forget about this half. Okay. Now, what happens here is very interesting uh, because the ministry of Jesus through his disciples as they tour around the land of Israel begins to spread to the degree that Herod hears about it. Now, to be clear here, this is Herod Antipas, okay? This isn't Herod the Great from Matthew 2, who the wise men come and say, where is the king to be born? 
and he hears about it, and he tries to put Jesus to death when Jesus is a baby. It's not that Herod. It's not Herod the Great who built the temple or built the fortress of Masada. This is his son, one of a handful of sons, who also bears his name. In fact, Herodias makes it into the story as well, named for her grandfather. Okay? Um, this Herod uh, actually never achieved the greatness of his father. In fact, he wasn't technically a king, but a tetrarch. He fought his whole life to be a king like his father was, and because he was such a pain, Rome eventually banished him to Spain. They had enough of him. Okay. And so it's probably appropriate for us to read this, remembering that Mark writes to a Roman audience with air quotes. King Herod. King Herod, the one who the emperor would not allow to be king. Um, but here we, uh, we find that he's been familiar in the past with Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had challenged him. Look at, uh, at verse 17. It was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Notice the language here. His brother Philip's wife because he married her. Okay. Mark puts that language very intentionally. On the surface, this woman, Herodias, is Herod's wife, but only after he had had an affair and she had divorced Herod's brother and come to live with Herod. And what we see here is, uh, is that John stood against that, and it's actually for a couple of reasons. If we want to get a little bit grosser, Herodias is actually Herod's niece. Okay. Not only is she a younger woman, but she's not too far removed in the family tree. Even Philip, Herod Philip, the other guy in this relationship, it was also his niece. Okay. So that's another brother of the family, and this is her daughter. Everything's kind of a mess, but what's important here is that Herod divorces his wife, has an affair with Herodias, and then takes her as his own, and John stands against it. Now, if you go back and you look at John's ministry, for the most part, he was out in the wilderness, and the people who heard John preach had to come to the wilderness to do so. And one of the things that we learn about Herod Antipas in the Gospels is that he had itchy ears. He always wanted to hear. When Jesus finally stands before him on trial, it says that Herod was delighted because he'd always wanted to hear Jesus preach. And Jesus wouldn't open his mouth. He wouldn't perform for Herod. And so it looks like here, maybe what happened is Herod sends for John and goes, oh man, everybody's going to hear this preacher. Have him come preach for me. And John says, I've only got one message for you, Herod. It's not right. It's not right what you've done. It's not right that you've uh, adulterously taken your brother's wife as your own. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now that's what puts John in prison. That's what leads to opposition. Effectively, John's message here is repent. Now, this is important for us to understand, and I want to lay a little bit of groundwork. First off, when we rightly communicate the good news, what we call the gospel, when we rightly explain to somebody what God has done in Jesus Christ and invite them to respond to it, it is never possible to do it without offense. 
Okay? Now that might be surprising because when we look at Jesus as a person and we look at that free gift of forgiveness that we offered this morning, we may see that as merely and strictly and wholly good news that doesn't have any asterisk, any fine print, any limitation, any obstacle. It sounds like it's just good news, but of course, where there is good news, there is bad news. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is an offense to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. He says, but to us who believe it is the power of God unto salvation. Okay. Now, why is that the case? Because on the one side, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus willingly and freely took the penalty of our sins on our behalf. But the stumbling block, the hard part, is two, twofold. One, God had to do that because that's how, things, how bad things really are. God had to come as a man and die in our place because we could not save ourselves. Okay? Effectively, the gospel, when it's communicated rightly, says you are not enough. You can't fix this. You cannot please God on your own. You cannot endure his holiness. And then the second thing was offensive was the method that God chose to use. There was no more despised happening in Rome than a crucifixion where somebody is stripped and beaten and exposed to the elements and hung on a cross and after hours and sometimes days just died of asphyxiation. And yet... Some of us are wearing cross necklaces. It's weird. It's difficult. But there's another part that underlies both of these and is implied by both, and that's the necessity of repentance. Okay. That we cannot receive the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus Christ without turning away from our sin, from our selfishness, from our own way of life. We cannot have Jesus as Savior unless we also take him as Lord. And you go, now hold on a minute, this is John the Baptist. His ministry was all wrath and fire. He's the one who, when the Pharisees came to him, he said, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath that is to come? He basically says, oh man, I really wanted you guys to experience the full judgment that you had coming. Why are you here? Right? This is John the Baptist. Yes, he had a ministry of repentance, but Jesus, he has a ministry of good news. Don't be so quick. Don't draw too far of a line. If you can, turn back a book to the Gospel of Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 1 says this about John's ministry. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you go, see, that's the ministry that John had. That's the mission that he had. But look at chapter 4. Specifically, look here at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you see the continuity there? Jesus picks up where John left off. Jesus has more to say than John, but not less. He comes with the same message. He comes with the same call. He presents the need for repentance. And you go, okay, yes, but that's where Jesus starts but that's not where he ends. He's headed to the cross. Come back with me to Mark chapter 5 and look at the ministry he's just sent the disciples on. Sorry, in chapter 6. Remember we talked about representing Jesus last week and he sends them out to heal the sick. 
to deliver those who are, uh, you know, in, in the chains of the demonic realm. And then I want you to notice verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed what? That people should repent. And you go, yeah, but Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't been buried yet. The forgiveness hasn't been bought. We only bring a message of forgiveness. We don't need to challenge people in their sins. Just present Jesus as an offering. But look at the very first sermon Peter gives in Acts chapter 2. So here Jesus is risen. He's ascended. He's told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem. I will make you my witnesses to the end of the earth, but first stay in Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it does. On the day of Pentecost, they're empowered, and Peter stands up and he preaches to a mystified multitude. And I want you to notice what he says here in chapter 2, verse 38. Verse 37, now when they heard Peter preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no escaping the need, the necessity for repentance. And I want to be clear here. The idea is not first you must repent and then you can receive the gospel. This isn't a prerequisite. It is a description of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not if you repent, then you are eligible for the gospel. It's receiving the gospel means repentance. Let me illustrate, okay? Isaiah says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. Here's what that looks like. I want you to imagine that we are all, for some unknown reason, eastbound on 520 towards Bellevue. Horror of horrors, right? Okay. What does it look like to return to Seattle? It has to look like turning around. You cannot follow Jesus and continue going your own way. You cannot repent of, uh, of your sins without leaving them. You cannot turn to Jesus without turning away from. Okay. They go hand in hand. Repentance is not a prerequisite for the gospel. It's what it looks like to return to God. What Jesus offers us is a way to do that fully and freely, but we still have to walk it. We still have to take it, okay? That means that one of the things we must communicate if we're going to rightly represent Jesus is the call to repentance that lays a finger on particular behaviors and particular attitudes and the worship of things that are created and not creator and and identify them as things that must be left behind to follow Jesus, must be repented of. This is hardcore. John comes to a man who rules over the entire area that he is ministering in, and he says, I have only one message for you. The way you're behaving is wicked. It's wrong. You've taken your husband's wife, excuse me, your brother's wife as your own. And let's be clear here. What is the consequence of that for John? First, imprisonment. Finally, death. And it's been this way throughout church history. Why was it that Jesus was crucified? Because he called to those who identified themselves as righteous and he said, no, you're like a sepulcher. You're like a whitewashed tomb. 
completely dead on the inside, entirely in need of cleansing. He came to those who sought to lead others and he said, no, you were blind. Listen to what Jesus says to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus conveys a message to the seven churches This is what he says to the church in Laodicea. In chapter three, verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What does he say here? He says your self-perception that you are sufficient, that you are beautiful, that you are righteous, that you are well-clothed and wealthy, he says it's wrong. It's just a deception. He says instead you need to come to me and buy without money what I offer. I will clothe you. I will give you sight. There is no way to receive the good news that God offers in Jesus Christ unless you receive first and foremost the label of a sinner who needs a savior. And you can't just do it in word. You can't have your cake and eat it too. In fact, what happens here effectively is uh, uh, John gets thrown in prison, but probably not for the reason you think. Herod doesn't really seem upset by this. Herodias does. Look at what it says in verse 17. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful that you have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. So why does John uh, get put in prison? It's actually Herod's plan to protect him. He's trying to do just enough to get Herodias to calm down uh, without having to go the distance and put him to death. And she's like, he's like, all right, I'll punish him. In fact, do you see how that's good news for Herod? Because now he's got a captive preacher. And it says here that he'd just go and hear him and hear him gladly. He was always perplexed, always confused. But he loved to go and hear John preach. And so now he's got him close. He's got him living in the basement of his palace in the prison. He can hear him whenever he wants, but he seems protected. Okay. Now, here's why repentance is essential. Okay. A lot of times when we think about sin, we think of sin uh, as, as a moment in time. Just a bloop. I did this bad thing. I did that bad thing. I neglected to do this good thing. It's just something uh, happening. Okay. Yeah. Um. But the Bible sees sin as a a present and growing reality in our hearts. Okay. It sees it as something living. It sees it as something that we feed and is hungry, and so we feed again, and as we do so, guess what? It grows. Okay. 
what Herod is trying to do here is keep his wife and John. He's trying to have both, but he can't. Right now, he's just committed adultery, but by the time he's done, he will have committed murder. And those two go hand in hand, don't they? He wouldn't have taken John's life if he had repented. The constant nagging voice in his ear, I want John dead, put John to death, is the woman who he lustfully took from his brother. See, this is the thing. The reason why we call for repentance is not just out of some self-righteousness that we have a bad view of other people. It's that we have a horrific view of sin. We believe that it's dangerous, not just damning, but present tense, actively destroying life. That if it's not dealt with, it will continue to eat us alive, to destroy our relationships, to separate us from God and from other people. John is doing this, and here's something I want you to understand. John is a prophet. Whenever we confront somebody with the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord, whenever we come before someone and say, this is the truth, this is false, whenever we come with a message of repentance, I need you to understand this morning that when that's done rightly, it is a vulnerable position. A lot of the times when we think of confrontation, we think of the self-righteous up in their high and holy mountain condemning people that they've never met, who they don't bump shoulders with, and who they obviously don't care about. We make a distinction in our culture between love and confrontation, between anger and love. But Jesus was angry about sin because sin destroys, and it's vulnerable, and not just because it might get you thrown in prison. Listen, if you've ever done this, if you've ever watched somebody who is being eaten alive by their own sin and you finally step in to intervene, you know that doing so may cost you that relationship, and that hurts. You know that doing so may mean that you lay out the consequences in front of them, and then you have to watch them endure all of those things because of their unwillingness to change, and that hurts. What John does here is vulnerable. Christ came, offered love, and called for repentance, and they crucified him for it. And that cross of Christ where he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Is that hatred or is it love? Is it indifference or is it vulnerable? John does this ministry for Herod's sake. But Herod has himself in a pickle. He tries to compromise. He tries to do just enough. But the message of John doesn't make sense. It says he's perplexed about it. Why? Because he's trying to avoid and ignore one part of it and receive the other, and it can't happen. We have to eat truth in one bite. We have to swallow all of it or we don't eat it at all. And so the sermon doesn't make sense because he's only got a half-truth, and a half-truth is no truth at all. Notice what it says in verse 21, but an opportunity came. An opportunity for who? For Herodias. She's not done, she's not settled, and she has a plan. And she goes, I know how to get what I need. She has a daughter, a daughter named Salome, a daughter who's very attractive and apparently a very good dancer, and she knows that Herod's heart is led around by his lust. That's how she became his wife. And so she comes up with a plan, and on his birthday, 
She executes it, verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now listen, this type of dancing is way beyond below the dignity of a princess, way beyond below the dignity of a family member, okay? It is, it is unimaginable that Salome would put herself in this position. In fact, if you read the book of Esther, this is what costs King Artaxerxes his first wife. Because he goes, he gets a little drunk, and he says, hey, why don't you come out and dance for my guests? And she goes, no way. So he puts her to death. But Salome comes in, and she dances, and Herod is not just drunk now, he's drunk on lust, and he makes a ridiculous promise. To this young little niece of his, he says, you can have anything. Anything in my power to give. He says, up to half my kingdom, that, that, that's just an expression of anything I can give you. Just, it's a blank check offer. But remember, Salome was sent by, his, by her mother, Herodias, and so she comes back and she goes, okay, he's given me the offer, what do I ask for? She says, you ask for John's head on a plate. Okay. This is the agenda. This was the plan. And what I want you to notice again is this is why Herod's condition was so serious. How does he put himself in this rash vow in front of all of these people who are supposed to be respecting him? Why does he feel stuck and he can't reverse? Why is he backed into a corner and has to go through with killing John? Because his lust leads his heart. Okay. The Bible says that the ultimate problem with sin uh, is, is idolatry. Idolatry is not just worshiping uh, you know, a block of wood or, or a god who you recognize as a god. It's taking anything and saying, this is what defines the good life. This is where I find my security. This is where I find my identity. If I do not have this, then life isn't worth living. And for Herod, his idol is sex. It drives his life, and it drives him to death, which is what idolatry always does. Now we understand the significance of John's call for repentance, and here he gets a chance to choose again between his sin and between the truth that John preaches, and he takes John's head. He looks around and he says, I have too much to lose. And so, verse 25, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Notice what it says in verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry. That word there for exceedingly sorry, Mark only uses in one other place. And it's when Jesus is in the garden and he's overwhelmed with sorrow. The same sorrow that Luke says led him to sweat great drops of blood. He is deeply grieved by being stuck in this place and having to take John's life. But sorrow and repentance are not the same thing. The grief he has here and the grief that leads to repentance are not the same thing. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9 says this, As it is, I rejoice not only because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He experiences grief, grief here, but not a grief that leads to life. 
because he holds on to his sin. He holds on to his reputation and puts it first. He can't say, mea culpa, my bad, I refuse to take another step in this direction. I turn away from these things. He doesn't bear the consequences of his foolishness, but he puts them on John's shoulders. Now at this point it goes, okay, then what's the point? Why is it valuable to call people to repent? Why is it valuable to represent Jesus when it can lead to not just opposition and death, but not be productive in Herod's life? Interestingly enough, the father of Herod's first wife, just a few years after the death of Jesus, uh, attacked Herod uh, and ruined his kingdom. And he did it in revenge for his daughter who had been divorced by Herod. What's interesting is Josephus tells us that many people in Israel saw that as being consequence for the death of John the Baptist, what he deserved. Okay. But we look at this and we go, what's the point? Why is it valuable? Why should I take it on the chin for Jesus if it doesn't change a heart? But I want you to notice something significant because what happens here? All this goes down. He's grieved, but he takes John's life anyways. And what happens a few years later, a few months later maybe, Jesus' disciples are out and about, and he starts to hear about this man who speaks with authority, hear about this man who is known for his character, hear about this man who is doing the miraculous. And everybody's trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. He's inexplicable. Some people are like, it's another prophet, just like in the Old Testament. Others are like, Malachi promised Elijah would come again. This must be him. And Herod goes, it's John the Baptist back from the dead. Why? Do you remember Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Telltale Heart? The truth of John the Baptist still rings in the ears of Herod. He can't get away from his guilt. He feels the full reality of it so that his impulse when he hears about another man is to assume that resurrection has just happened. Okay? Now, we don't know much about Herod's religion, but the idea of a bodily resurrection back in the flesh is as big of a leap as it is today. And that's the first place he goes. Not this is one of John's disciples following after him. This is John back from the dead. Okay? This is just like Macbeth. His guilt is interpreting his lens. Here's the thing. When we endure the vulnerability of confrontation, when we represent Jesus with a call to repentance, that truth has a permanence. The early church fathers had a saying, they said that the, uh, the harvest of the church was sown in the blood of the martyrs. In other words, what caused the church to grow in the first few centuries was how Christians died. Because there was this message and then there was this faithfulness to the message, and there was a fully endured, received, submitted to cost, and they went, wait a minute. This has to be true. This has to be real. If you're a Christian, you understand this because you've read about the crucifixion of Jesus, and you feel the love of that death. When we're faithful to the message, when we endure the cost of bearing it, 
when we lovingly pray like Jesus did on the cross to those who persecute us, Father, forgive us for they do not know what we're doing. We anchor the truth of God's gospel deep in the hearts of those who hear. And it stays there. John the Baptist is dead, but his voice keeps speaking to Herod. The Old Testament says that God will not leave himself without a witness. And sometimes the way that works is through our faithful presentation of the things despite the cost. It continues to ring in the ears. It continues to be present. Okay. And so here's what I'm saying. Well, here, let's close with C.S. Lewis. Lewis says, now repentance is no fun at all. And I love that he just admits that. It, it is a difficult and costly thing. It's painful and it hurts. And he mentions this actually in a book that's not about repentance, but a book about pain and the problem of pain. And this is what he says. He, he comes to a point where he's talking about how God uses pain like a megaphone to rouse a sleeping world, to get our attention, to help us to understand that the things that we're trusting in, they're all going to burn up and they won't be valuable to us when we're dead. To draw our attention to the fact that we're in danger, just like when you touch a hot stove. What do your pain receptors tell you? Dangerous. Pull your hand away, right? But he says, yes, I recognize that sometimes God's last card of pain can just lead to more resistance, can just lead us to double down in our stubbornness, can just lead us, lead us to blame God even though we're to blame for the consequences of our sin. And he says, but it's also the only thing God can do that leads to repentance. It's God's Hail Mary. Repentance is the way to freedom. And this is true not just if you haven't become a Christian yet. This isn't just the doorway into Christianity. It is the daily life of following Jesus. The Reformation, led by Martin Luther, was ultimately about repentance. And so he opens his 95 thesis, this document that he nailed to the door of a church in Wittenberg that began the Reformation with these words, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. Repentance isn't just how you follow Jesus, it's how you continue to follow Jesus. Okay. Now, what I'm suggesting to you this morning and what I want to lay on the table for you is that we cannot represent Jesus without the call to repentance. Because sin is actively destroying our friends, our families, and our neighbors. And because you cannot continue in sin and run from it. Because you cannot worship Jesus and idols. Because you must turn away from sin to turn unto God. And really, truly, fully, if we get it, and if we experience it in our own life, if we know the value of repentance, the long-standing fruit, if we know, like Jesus, that if a seed falls to the ground and dies, it bears a plentiful harvest, if we've experienced that for ourselves, then we will joyfully and with endurance call other people to repent because repentance is life. And so there's dark news in John. And every one of the disciples is going to experience it. Some of them, like Paul, will be beheaded, just like John was. Some of them, like Jesus, will be crucified, like Peter was. 
but all of them will do it willingly and freely, both because they know what they have in Jesus Christ cannot be taken from them, so they have nothing to lose, and because they know what's at stake for the watching world who may or may not hear our message is that high stakes, and so they do it as an act of love. It shouldn't be surprising to us that following Jesus looks like Jesus. It shouldn't be surprising to us that the only way we represent Jesus is to follow in his footsteps. But I want to communicate one last thing to you, especially if you're not a Christian this morning. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about repentance there as well. And he says there's a problem with human beings in that it takes a good man to repent, but a good man doesn't need to. A bad man needs to repent, but he can't find it in himself to do it. And he says that is what the cross is all about. Because the cross is God surrendering on our behalf. And so when we receive Jesus, the call to repent is just like when Jesus says to a lame man, rise, take up your bed and walk. It's an impossible task apart from the power of Christ. It's not something you can do on your own. It's not something God is asking you to do on on your own. It is something God is offering you in Jesus Christ. And so repentance has to be done, but it also has to be received. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices, that you don't let us just wander after our own choices and own opinion. Because Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And you threw yourself in front of us. You stood in the way of that death and said, over my dead body will you get the consequences of your decisions. And then you held out a hand and you offered us and you said, all is forgiven. Repent and believe. And Lord, we live in a world that is full of anger and hatred without love. And so it feels wrong for us to speak into other people's lives and to speak so dogmatically and to call for repentance. But we don't call the world to repent as the righteous condemning those who don't live up to our behavior. We call as sinners who have found freedom and forgiveness, who have gotten better than we deserve and want others to know the gift that we have received in Jesus Christ for themselves. I pray, Lord, that you teach us the vulnerability of John, the vulnerability of your prophets in the Old Testament, the vulnerability of Christ himself who willingly and freely offered his body as a living sacrifice. In fact, he offered it all the way to the point of death. And we confess, Lord, like it says in Revelation, we have yet to endure to the point of bleeding. But I pray, Lord, that we'd be willing to speak up. I pray that the, the truth would burn in our breasts like it did the prophet Jeremiah and we could not help but speak. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't foolishly just call people to turn away from their sins without calling them to turn unto Jesus who saves them. But that we would also recognize that people can't turn unto Jesus if they don't turn away. Empower us by your spirit to be your witnesses. Empower us to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. 
but also convict us and empower us to convey the message, to turn away from the kingdom of darkness and enter into the kingdom of light. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. As we respond, let's continue to worship.